As you remember, last week I was talking from Psalm 146 and then brought you over to Psalm 119, the 73rd verse and the 74th. Now, if you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119, the 73rd and 74th verses, and we'll go beyond that tonight, but uh, possibly just to refresh us a little bit and uh, to cover a few points, you know, it's a, a wonderful thing when you study the Scriptures. Uh, no matter how many times I might preach from Romans or Hebrews or Psalms or any of the books of the Scripture, I never take an old message. My, uh, I have drawers full of messages, but I never take out an old message because you cannot uh, have fresh things taking out old messages. They're fine, but you have to uh, remember that as you go to the Scripture, you always find something new, the new wine. You know, it's just wonderful so that when you go to the Bible and you begin to speak and preach on the things of God, there's always fresh things and new things. And even during the week, you know, as I go over the portions that I've already spoken about, other thoughts come. And uh, the Holy Spirit truly as you search the scriptures, just opens them so wide. You know, we hear about people talking about LSD and that mind expansion idea. And I have to say that the Holy Spirit is the great mind expander, that he expands the mind so that we can grasp the things of God. And this LSD can never do. And so as we speak of these things, there's so many tremendous truths in it that should feed our hearts. And in the 119th Psalm, 73rd verse, I spoke of it last week. Thy hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding they, that I may learn thy commandments. And uh, just a few thoughts in passing on that. Number one, thy hands have made me. Uh, ingratitude and exultation of our own human mind as it looks for other sources of creation gives no credence to this portion of the word of God. In other words, if I am to be swayed by professors, I listened to a uh, professor in, from one of the large universities yesterday, and he frankly admitted under questioning that the gaps are so wide, he said, between the different species that they try to bring into man that it is impossible. And he said, I doubt in my lifetime we'll find the answer. Well, I imagine scientists have been saying this for a long time the gaps between the, the animal creation and man. In other words, that man is a distinct creation. He's separate from all other creations. He is Adamic. And if we were to throw this, uh, thy hands have made me and fashioned me. Now, is God true? Or is science have something beyond God? Does science contain more knowledge to give to man than God does. So when it says, thy hands have made me, we're looking at divine truth. Remember in that 146th Psalm, I think it said, thy truth is forever unto all generations. In other words, it will never change. God's hands have made us and formed us. 
And he says, Thy hands have made me and fashioned me. And oh, what an amazing fashioning. No two alike. No two snowflakes alike. When we think of all the varieties of, of God in his fashioning of men, and then realize that God says his hands have made us and that ingratitude and exaltation of the human mind that would say that I know more than God. To me, it is unthinkable that a finite man living in a little period of time has any thought that he can find the source of creation. We did not come from primeval ooze, despite all that men say. We are the Adamic man. We are out of Adam. Otherwise, the blood of Christ means nothing. Salvation is false. But we are out of Adam. We came into this world. God fashioned us. This is his word. Isn't it good to believe God? Isn't it good to believe God? To take him at his word? Continually, we're told that we're exalting God when we exalt his word. And so when we understand that his hands have made us and fashioned us. You know, sometimes somebody's got a little better brain than somebody else. Sometimes someone's a little more handsome than somebody else, a little more beauty than somebody else. And yet it says God fashioned us. Uh, I think Paul puts it well, what hast thou that thou didst not receive it? And if you receive it, why do you boast as though it is thine own? You didn't have a thing to do the way you look. Some are unfortunate, some are more fortunate. Right? You didn't have a thing to do with the size brain you got. Not a thing. So where would pride come in? Pride cometh before the fall. God made us and fashioned us. And yet somehow a woman will... Exalt in her beauty, though her beauty may be the very crushing of her life. A man might revel in his handsomeness, and yet that handsomeness may be the fall of his life. We don't know. Beauty is an inequality of the soul. And so it says he fashioned us also, so it leaves out pride. What hast thou that thou didst not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast like it's your own? Sure, some have a little more mental power than others. We don't doubt that at all. But it doesn't change salvation one iota. Salvation is still by grace through faith, without anything. And we can praise God that he fashioned us. He made us. Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. Brilliant man. But I am what I am by the grace of God and nothing else. Oh, that we all should be able to say that. He says, give me understanding. Godly understanding, that's what he longed for. Not, uh, not confidence in our own conceptions. Not uh, our own reasonings. But rather that tremendous, I don't know if, if sometimes Christians really grasp what they possess. Paul says, ye have the mind of Christ. I often wonder how many Christians really believe it. But that's what God says. 
God says, ye have the mind of Christ. Well, you can't have his Holy Spirit dwelling within you without the mind of Christ. That's all it's telling you. You cannot separate a man's spirit from his mind. And when God gives you his Holy Spirit and he comes in and dwells with you and abides with you forever, he is giving you his mind. Number one, that you may know Jesus perfectly. Jesus says, I will give you the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. He will not speak of himself. He will speak of me and bring into your remembrance everything about me. And so God has given us this tremendous gift of the Holy Spirit. We have the mind of Christ. Give me godly understanding. Imagine if we operate on this level with the mind of Jesus Christ. Do you think many Christians really do? I doubt it. Very few. How many of us operate with the mind of Christ at all times? How easily we're misled. How easily we can fall into Satan's lures. Oh, that we might have that mind of Christ always there so that in every problem, every trial, every burden of life, immediately we look at ourselves and we say, it is not I that live, but Christ who lives in me. I have the mind of Christ. May I approach my problem as Christ approached it, for he dwells in me. Oh, what a change that would make. What a change that would make. What a change it would make in moral character in the Christian. What a change it would make in his approach to his trials. What a change it would make in his love for his Lord. For the Spirit would put all that wondrous love in his heart toward the lost outside and to the brethren and to God the Father himself so that that love would abound, as Paul says, more and more unto the day of redemption. So we're to have that glorious mind. Give me godly understanding not confidence in ourselves. That I may learn thy commandments, not the seeking of other ways to satisfy myself, not the seeking of another way to enjoy life apart from God. Now, I have to be frank. There's lots of things that the world can offer to give you a sense of happiness. And some people, the more money they get, the happier they think they're going to be. It doesn't work that way. I'm sorry to tell you. If I were to look at a congregation or any pastor look at a congregation, the thing he dreads most because of the history of the church is that the people under God should become rich in material blessings. For the richness of material blessings has never been a blessing to the church of Jesus Christ. The only thing that has ever blessed the church of Jesus Christ has been when it's been under persecution, and the whole history of the church shows it. It rallies around the banner of Jesus when persecution is rife, when men are suffering. For they know if we suffer with Christ we'll also be glorified with him. The trouble with much of us today is we've had such an affluent society and we have so much ease and so much comfort that somehow the Christian life seems almost like a rosy road to heaven. Well, beloved, let me say this. The one who really bears their witness for Jesus Christ high and isn't afraid to say so will not find that it's too rosy a road. There'll be many objections to you in many, many places when you bear your testimony for Jesus Christ. 
that I might learn thy commandments, that I might learn to live as you want me to live, that I might learn that those things that you have put in your word are for me, that I might learn that I should be separated unto God and separated from a dying world, that I am a citizen of a new country, that I am part of a holy nation, that I am a royal priest in the very house of God. When we begin to see ourselves in this light, then will we begin to live as Christ wanted us to live, as the very sons of God, through faith in the cross of Calvary. So, the way that seems right to man are the ways of death. Jesus said, broad is the gate and wide is the way that leads to destruction, and the many there are that go therein, but narrow is the gate and straight is the way that leads to life eternal, and how many find it? Few there are that find it. I object to any religious system or any religious body or sectarian group that says, I have the inner road to heaven. There's something wrong. They do not know the word of God. That road to heaven is only paved by the blood of Jesus Christ, and he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And it has nothing to do with us, as I've said before, being Baptist. It has to do with our personal relationship to the Savior and him alone. And only the man and the individual or the woman or the young person here tonight knows whether they're redeemed or not. No one else. Your husband doesn't know, your wife doesn't know. Only God knows and you because you can live a life right down to the grave and you can have a false faith that really isn't true and sit in the pews of the church and sit under gospel preaching down to the very end and yet be lost because you haven't really in that heart of hearts because God looks upon the heart, not on outward things, not on the show, not on the services, not on the names on the rolls, but he looks upon the heart. And oh, how terrible to think that years and years can pile up and somehow we think that we're in because we went to a certain church. What a tragedy. One of the authors that I love very much and read quite often is a man that probably none of you know uh, since he died back in the late 1800s. That kind of dates us, you know. But it was William Taylor, Reverend William Taylor, who was pastor of the Presbyterian Church in New York City, Fifth Avenue Presbyterian. He was one of the greatest preachers probably, packed the church out. You know, there are some men that used to pack the church out, unbelievably so. We'd have to say the great change is, is, is for the worse in the, in the churches, uh, in some of those great churches. The churches where some of the great preachers once preached are empty. Uh, it's unbelievable when I think of the preaching that he did for 38 years in that church and his sermons and his messages are brands of fire. And, uh, but I'll never forget uh, one portion that I read when he said this. He said, after my 38 years of preaching, I have looked out at my congregation. And he had a congregation of probably 1,500 in those days. He said, I looked out at my congregation and as I would meet them at the door, he said, there would be a few people, he said, that I would just keep praying. I've been praying for 38 years about these folks. 
And he said, I just keep praying, Lord, someday when they get to the door, if they just say to me, isn't it wonderful to be saved by grace? But he says, they always come to me and say, hey, pastor, I'm trying my best. And he said his heart would break as he'd hear them come to the door and say, I'm trying my best. He'd say, he'd say all kinds of questions. He'd say, are you going to heaven, sister? He'd say, I'm doing my best, pastor. And he said, his blood would run cold because here, 38 years, he said, they'd be under my ministry. And yet, hearing the word of God, having ears they hear not and having eyes they see not. And what a tragedy this can be. Someone said to me this morning, one of our young people, while I was talking to him, said, I asked a friend to come, and I said, I told him one thing. I said, what? I said, I told him that if they came here, they would be sure when they went out that they would know who the Savior was. I said, fine, that's wonderful. Thank you very much for that. Because there are many young people that we meet who have no knowledge of the Saviorhood of Jesus Christ at all have no feelings about the saviorhood of Christ. And so, beloved, let's make sure that we understand that there are not to be any seeking of other ways to enjoy life without the wondrous grace of God, that I may learn thy commandments. He says, my commandments are not grievous. That's what he tells us. And this is the commandment that I leave with you, that you love one another. No man ever yet hateth his his own flesh, and then he speaks about no man who knows me could hate a brother. It wouldn't be possible. He says, he that hates a brother, he's lost. He has not God with him. He says, I want you to know this commandment that this Christ who's come into your heart gives you an overwhelming love, as I said this morning, that flows out to others so that all who hear this great message of the gospel of salvation recognize that it's love from your heart and we don't care what their color is. There's, there's no color with Jesus Christ. It's a love that wells out from the heart to the black and to the yellow and to the red and to the white so that when the children sing red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. We mean it because many times we'd have to wonder whether the songs that we teach our little children are regarded in our own hearts as true. And we would have to say that many times after they've sung a hymn like that in their Bible, in their little Sunday school class in the morning, they may have gone home to the table and listened to a mother and father speak about things that didn't indicate they'd love so much as they said they did when they were in Sunday school. So, beloved, there are things here that we have to remember that we should learn of Jesus. Now, let's... Them that fear, they that fear thee will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in thy word. I spoke of that last week. I didn't speak about that first portion much, but that, this portion here I spoke about that the people of God are so happy and so glad when they see someone who's been an overcomer. Oh, what a joy it is to see someone who's really won the battle. Aren't you thrilled? I tell you, nothing thrills my heart like that. When I see another Christian who's come through it with flying colors, been through the deepest trial and the deepest burden, and still is holding fast to the Savior and rejoicing. Is there anything more wonderful? Isn't it wonderful when you walk into a sick room and the sick person cheers your heart up? Hmm? Isn't it? You walk out, you know, you, you feel so small. You went in, you were going to be the big cheer-upper, and you leave and you think, well, I got all the blessing. 
I got all the blessing. But this is, this is what cheers the heart up. When they see me, he says, when those that fear thee see me, they will really rejoice because I've hoped in thy word. I proved to them that your word is true and it strengthened me. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. Thy word hath strengthened my heart. Oh, what a joy that is. And then the 75th verse, I know, O Lord, that the, thy judgments are right and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. Now here, I think, is a, is a very important portion. It's very important for several reasons. To know that God has afflicted you is a great step toward repentance and restoration. To know that it's God who has afflicted you. There are many pitfalls here. There are those, unfortunately, and I, I would have to say this, there are those, it's a problem, who take every little illness as a token of God's displeasure. Every little illness, no matter what it is, it's a token of God's displeasure. And often, those seemingly spiritual in the church, they utter that oft-worn phrase, why me? How often have you heard Christians say that? Why me? How could this thing ever happen to me? Or so to say, Christians never suffer. And yet the whole of Scripture indicates that Christians suffer. Beloved, disease and death, either sudden or delayed or protracted, is the lot of every creature unless Jesus comes. And we're to be careful that we don't take every single illness as though it is some judgment of God. There are those who, who feel that whenever they're ill, whenever anything happens to them, that there is something wrong in their life with their Savior. Now, beloved, this is far from the truth. Only the individual knows whether this illness, whether this affliction is from God. Now we have the other extreme. We have the person who bypasses every sig signal from God that they're living in sin. In other words, here's the person who takes every little illness, every little trial, and says, what have I done now? What's wrong? Why me? Then there's the other person that God is dealing with and chastening, and that person brushes it all aside. They're having trouble in the family life. They're losing control. Their worship life is not right. They're not reading their devotions every day. They very seldom pray. If you'd ask them if they opened the Word of God, they'd say, well, no, I don't have time for that. How much time did you spend in prayer today? Honestly, oh, about two minutes. And then something comes into their life and they brush it aside as though it has nothing to do with God. This is the other extreme. They leave God out of the picture completely, although the very thing that's happening to them may be the very hand of God upon their life warning them that they're drifting and drifting and drifting away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And often this can happen. There should be that understanding that when God chastens us, remember it says here, I Know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right and that thou 
in faithfulness hast afflicted me. What is thy affliction tonight? Hast thou judged thyself? Hast thou really thought about thyself at all? Had things grown a little rough? Is your life crumbling a little bit? Is your marriage a little bit on the rocks? Is love waning? What is thy affliction? And then I say to you, what is your spiritual condition? Where do you stand tonight with God as to your faithfulness to him? Are you really faithful? Does your light shine? Do people really know you're a Christian? Does the family know it? What are you like in your family? Are you the light, the cheerful one? Are you the one who really brings light into the family life? Are you? Or are you the depressing kind? The children would just as leave if you didn't get home for supper. Daddy's grumpy when he comes home. Or maybe the husband says in his own heart, when I do come home, I don't seem to be wanted around anyway. You know, we get a lot of imaginations running through our minds, all kinds of things getting away from the things of God, no prayer at the table, no devotion, no Bible, nothing at all. We know it's right. The Word of God says, He that knoweth to do right and, and doeth it not to him it is sin. We know what is right. We know we should pray with our children on our knees. We know we should unburden our hearts to them. Many times, instead of a parent yelling at the children, maybe if there were a few tears shed on knees together, there'd be some results. We know the problems. Oh, there are great afflictions. And these afflictions that come into life, any affliction that comes in, the first judgment is this in my heart. Lord, am I in the center of thy will? Where have I varied from the path? And if I see that my life is in good accord with God's word and I feel the joy of the Lord welling up in my heart, if I'm a cheerful person, if I don't get depressed and I don't fight with my family and I don't yell and I don't shriek and I show that I have great control of my temper and I show that I have the mind of Christ and that I think with the mind of Christ, and I am so portraying Christ to the children that my children will know Christ because they know me, then you are fitting into that place that God is calling you to. He says, hear the psalmist, only thou hast afflicted me, and I know that thy judgments are right, Lord. You make no mistakes. There can be no mistakes with God. When his chastening hand falls, it falls very carefully upon his child so that he may get the best out of his child. And that chastening may last just as long as God wants it, and he may take you under a most depressive state mentally 
for weeks or weeks or months until he gets what he wants. And then when you get back to the Word, lots of people depressed, frustrated. Oh, I want to assure you that the only answer to frustration and despair and all of these things is perusal and study of the Word of God and prayer and tears and burdened hearts for the souls of men, whether it's your own family or others. And I want to tell you that when you get burdened for the hearts of others, when you get burdened for the souls of others, your own problems are much smaller. But listen, there is chastening in the, ha- in the life of the Christian because whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son. May I remind you of that, Hebrews 12? Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and he scourges every son. And it means exactly that. Do you know why he scourges every son? Because there's not one that really loves enough. Is there one that really loves that much? That the Father doesn't have to chasten us somewhat? Have you ever measured your love for Jesus? When I think of the book of Revelation and the church at Ephesus, a great church, and when the Lord Jesus speaks to that church, he has to look at them. He says, he tells them all of the things that are so fine. He says, yet have I somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Oh, listen, this is the kind of love God wants from your heart. Just as a wife wants from her husband or a husband from a wife only built a million times upon a million times, this is what Jesus is looking for you because it is divine love from him to you and it is to be divine love from you to him because he's planted agape in your heart, which is the love of God so that you can express a love for him that will surmount your love for your mate far beyond the skies, so that when that love for Jesus is reached a peak, then your love for your mate will be deeper than any fleshly love any man could ever express for a woman or a woman for a man. Because the more you love him, the more you'll love your mate, and the more you'll love your children. Sometimes I've had people say, how can I love Jesus more than my wife? Or a wife say, how can I love Jesus more than my husband? I say, well, I want to tell you something. When you get to love Jesus more than you love your husband, you love your husband more than you love him now. And this is the way God does it. Why do you think that God has placed us in this position that this love should be spread out in our heart? Oh, he judges us and he chastens us and he scourges us, but it's only for our betterment. Isn't this true with children, mothers and fathers? Isn't it true? The child left unto himself is unto his mother ashamed. That's what it says in the Scripture. There has to be that hand directed by the Lord Jesus Christ in the management of the family. And I want to say that that hand is never brutal. Oh, I've had Christians tell me, you know, I visit them or something, and they'll say, you know, I'll say, did you go to church anymore? No, I don't go to church anymore. Well, why don't you go to church? Do do you know Christ? When I was a young fellow, I made a profession. Well, why don't you go to church? My father beat me. What do you mean he beat you? Every Sunday would come, and if I didn't feel, if I said, I don't, 
I don't want to go to church. Instead of him coaxing me or wanting me to go or saying, son, I love you, won't you come with me? He'd beat me. I want to tell you that the love that God puts in a father's heart for his children, I remember that the word of God says, fathers, do not anger your children. Father's love with a kind of love that is compassionate and tender and strong. And I want to tell you, no father is brutish like a brute beast. And if a father has the Holy Spirit dwelling in his breast by faith and he is a dynamic man of God, he will so impress his children with that love that has been put into his heart that they'll understand that the deepest hurt they can put to a father's heart is staying away from the God that they love. Oh, yes. Tremendous things. He chastens us. I know, Lord, that thy judgments are right and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. You don't get upset when you're a little bit judged. You don't get all upset. You don't run around looking for the neighbors and telling them all your problems, you know. What a tragedy this is. I really might, you know, when I hear somebody that's a Christian and has a problem and they're running to this neighbor and that neighbor and as though they've got to find somebody to help them and, and the word of God says, the word is neither even in thy mouth. You don't have to go anywhere to find God. You didn't have to come to Franklin Avenue to find him tonight, I hope, because he wasn't here. He's never here unless you're here. There's no sanctuary lamp here to indicate that Christ is here. Christ is only in this building when you come in. You bring him in. And when you walk out, it's just an empty hulk, that's all. It's a place where you have fellowship with other believers only because the Holy Spirit dwells in each of your bodies. It's the communion of all those who love Jesus Christ coming together. He's not here but he's in that human heart. And therefore, beloved, when the Lord deals with us, when he chastens us, you are to understand, and you're the only one, you may die, and your wife or husband will never know that you died because of God's judgment. Only you would know that. No one else. I don't believe God leaves that a secret to a man. I'll never forget this. I think I've mentioned it when Harry Ironside was telling how when he had gone to one of the men, a young man, he said, had been a preacher, had been called out to be a missionary, and he went to see him. He was ill. He walked into the room. He'd been preaching for several years, had a tremendous ministry, about five or seven years. And when he walked into the room, he spoke to him, he said, I'd like to pray for you. The doctor didn't seem to know what was wrong, but he says, I can't do anything for him. He just seems to be dying, and there's not a thing we can do. Harry Iron said, I said to him, I'll pray with you. Let's pray that the Lord will heal you. He said, Dr. Ironside, don't you dare pray that prayer. He says, I can't tell you, but I've disobeyed God in a terrible way and the Lord's going to take me home. Harry Ironside said, I couldn't do it. I couldn't pray. So he said, I just said, well, can I just pray with you that if this is your home going, that you've confessed all those sins? And he prayed thus, and he went home to be with the Lord the next day, young man.
young man. Now that young man knew that God's hand was upon him. This psalmist knows. He says, I know thy judgments that they are right and that thou hast afflicted me. Would you know? Would you know tonight? Would you? Are you kind of troubled in your mind? Do doubts run through? Is the devil getting quite a grip in there? On that old brain, you know? You've been going to college now and things look different. And you can rest assured it's Satan. If there's any way that Satan would delude, it's through the educational process. Delude, you see. Are you being afflicted? In what area are you afflicted? Is it in the family? Listen, one woman said to me, well, pastor, it's too late for me, you see. My, my son now is 37 years old and he's not saved. And I wasn't saved when, when he was a boy. It's too late. I, I can't do anything. I feel this terrible affliction of God in my soul, in my own son. I can't even talk to him about Jesus. The minute I start to talk, he shuts me off. And I said, oh, mother, you're giving up. I said, have you told him how to be saved? Oh, I've told him time and again. I said, all right. Don't tell him anymore. You just don't repeat, 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 repeat. That gets sickening. I said, now what you do is pray with tears. I said, really? Cry your heart out to God. Get on your knees and pray. But pray like you meant it. And pray like you expected results. It's not too late. I want to tell you, that mother prayed and prayed, and that boy got saved. Why? It's never too late. Some of you people, you know, you get to say, it's too late. This has happened to me. Something's happened to me. It's never too late. Though your sins would be as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Though God has afflicted you for something, yet would he cleanse you and you could go on with Jesus Christ in tremendous victory. God is looking for holy vessels that he may send forth and proclaim his word. You, 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 everyone. Some say I'm too old. Well, God help you and God bless you. I hope the height of your spirituality is not commensurate with your age physically. I would hope that your spirituality would be beyond your age physically so that though you may be older, yet do you have the dynamic of God. May I remind you that all of the Old Testament saints and the New, they did their greatest work over 70 and 80 years of age. Some of us say when we're 65, boy, get me a chair to sit down until they put me in the coffin. God deliver me. If God just gives me legs and arms and a heart that beats, I never want to sit in a chair and talk about retirement. I'm glad no one... Now, you know, I'm not against retirement where you're in a corporation that says you've got to get out to 65. I guess there's not much you can do. But I want to tell you something. You can be busy for God. Do you know there's lots of work to do with the Lord, for the Lord? when you reach that time. But, oh, God grant, beloved, wouldn't it be wonderful to die with your shoes on? Huh? Wouldn't it? Walking for the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you a servant of God? You see? The psalmist knows. He says, I know. I know you afflict me for a reason. I know all these things. I know that your judgments are right about me. But one thing I'll do, I'll seek to be in the house of the Lord forever.
That's the yearning of my heart. I know I'm going to dwell there. I want to live in the light of that coming day when I'll see Jesus face to face. I hope I'm not in a rocking chair when Jesus comes. Be great if when Jesus comes, you're testifying to somebody about the Savior. I can't think of a more wonderful thing, could you? Oh, I know some of the young people tonight, if I said, I hope Jesus comes right now, you'd probably say, Pastor, please give me a chance. I haven't had my first job yet. Well, I feel sorry for you. <laughs> I haven't got married yet, you know. All of these things. Oh, listen to me. Listen to me. It's wonderful to be a Christian and to be in love with Christ and to know that he loves you like no one else will ever love you. I don't know if I can ever impress that into your heart. I'm sure somebody here tonight says, oh, I don't know how, many, how anybody could love me. I hope you say that more than my husband. I'd love that if you could say it, you know. No one would love me like my wife loves me. Well, that's, that's wonderful. I'm glad for that. But I want to tell you there's one that loves you more than your husband or wife ever loved you and died for you that you might have life eternal. That's the kind of love we're talking about. Let us pray. Now, Father, we thank thee for thy precious word. Lord, there's so much to talk about from thy word that feeds our souls. We thank thee for the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we're so thankful that you never let us think it would be a bed of roses. Jesus said, in this world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And then the psalmist tells us that as the children of God, there'll be judgments and chastening. And that there'll be affliction from the hand of God. And that God has his purposes. Lord, may we not thwart thee. When something comes into our life that really is a deep and a dreadful burden to us, we may not tell another soul in the world. No one in this congregation may know of another person's deep. It may be. And yet the whole answer might be, and probably, Lord, is a real dedication of life to thee, of love, of expressing it, of praying much of learning thy word, of fellowship with thee, of communion with the saints, of trusting Jesus more and more day by day. Oh, Father, this answer is undoubtedly answer for so many Christians if they're honest with thee. They'd have to say, I've neglected thy word, I've neglected, I've neglected my of God. Jesus, I've neglected to tell you that I love you. Forgive me and give me understanding. Oh God, give us Holy Spirit understanding that we might understand life and might be victorious in it because Christ is at our side. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.